Amen. Today we're not going to have a normal sermon a time. We're going to actually have a punctuated sermon throughout the course of the time as well as your singing throughout the service today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his timeless book, Psalms, the Prayer Book of the Bible, says this, Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. Brothers and sisters, I've said from this pulpit many times that the great project of your generation is the recovery of biblical Christianity and the liberation from the tepid, domesticated version of the faith which has been paraded all over the world and masqueraded as the real thing. And part of this great project, this generational project of your time is the recovery of the Psalms. And part of this chapel purpose is to reintroduce you to the Psalms as a means of grace. God has placed a worship book right in the middle of the Bible. It is set in prose, and not in prose, but in, prose, but in Hebrew poetry, and it's given to us to be sung. If you go to the uh, seedbed site, you'll see the first question I ask you is, the Psalms were meant for singing. Why don't we sing them? We very rarely encounter the Psalms as an act of sung worship, and yet one of the historic designations of the Psalms is the sung Torah. Not just because the Psalm was in a collection of five books, though it was organized that way, but also that the Psalms are meant to be the intersecting point of the entire Old Testament canon. All of the law, the prophets, and the writings all find their massive uh, collection of the Psalms and turned into acts of worship. And then because of prophetic expectation and fulfillment and extensive quotation in the New Testament, the Psalms is, of course, the most quoted book in the New Testament from the Old Testament, then you are singing the entire Old Testament and even anticipatory the New Testament canon when you sing the Psalter. The Psalms are the only inspired worship book and therefore it's designed to be foundational for all Christian worship. Now, hymns and choruses are wonderful, and they also go back to the very earliest church. We were thankful for all of them. But the Psalms are the singular shared canon of worship. It serves kind of as the public square, the shared space for all Christians throughout all of time. And indeed, throughout the vast, vast majority of Christian history, it was in fact the Psalms which would have been the complete and even soul and certainly the primary means of worship in any Christian gathering at any time around the world. It's not until the 18th century that the hymns slowly began to overtake the psalms, and by the 20th century, most churches do not use psalms in worship except perhaps as a form of responsive reading, but not a sung psalm. Today, the purpose of the chapel, as I said, is to reintroduce you to the psalms as a means of grace. It was not until uh, Julie and I were in our 50s that we discovered, I hope that didn't sound too old to you, uh, that we discovered the means of grace uh, as the Psalms. We really, we had been exposed to it kind of mildly in our background, but it was really something that we started doing very, very regularly, in fact, daily, starting in 2011. And it's become one of the most formative means of grace in our lives. We've now sung through the entire Psalter 17 times, and we're on our 18th time right now. Even when I'm on the road, which I, of course, frequently am, we still do it on the phone. 
that we found that you can't do, sing together at the phone at the same time. It creates woo weird. So we sing of ours back and forth. But we do it all the time because it's become an act of formation for us. The 150 journeys of the Psalms, and they are really come to us as 150 journeys, they are not like you might imagine them to be. They can be very disruptive and tumultuous. The Psalms can hammer away at us as much as they may comfort us because it's about catechesis. It's about shaping us as God's people, and it brings us into a very different understanding of what it means to be the people of God. And because the psalm represents 150 separate journeys, God knew we would need these journeys, and so each of them is designed to catechize our heart into a particular way. After all these years, now almost 10 years doing this every day, we now have these 150 journeys in our mind and our hearts, and it's very, very precious to us. But Psalm 1 represents the doorway into all the psalms. All the psalms, in some ways, a reflection and commentary on Psalm 1, which sets forth the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So at this point, we're now going to sing, we already heard it in the call to worship, but now sing together Psalm 1. And George will lead us. Yeah, let's stand together. seated. As we have just sung, this opening psalm of the entire Psalter gives us a framework of perspective about the two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. This is one of the most prominent themes throughout the whole Psalter, and that there is a pathway to align ourselves with the way of the righteous, with God's ways, and that there is a way to align ourselves that departs from that. Jesus himself affirmed this near the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, when he talked about the wise and foolish builders and about the broad and narrow path. There is always a choice before us every day, 
in countless decisions that we make to align ourselves with the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. And the Psalms spend a great deal of time expounding both of those, sometimes even rehearsing the thought life of the wicked for us. The Psalms show us life in the real world, not just in our worship space, but as we go out and encounter life, they teach us how to lay hold of God and align our path with his ways every day. The Psalms are like a daily compass of orientation that always keep us turned toward God and his ways. The relentless narrative of the world is all around us, bombarding us every day with worldly perspective. But the Psalms catechize us in the way of God's perspective while they keep us alert to both. The Psalms don't just reorient our perspective, however, they also reorient our heart. Wesley, of course, called us to a reoriented heart, and this heart change is not just a single crisis event, but it is a process of ongoing continual formation. We are deeply formed when we pray, and prayer especially that is sung. When we sing, the inner part of us is stirred and awakened and opened up to being formed and molded. It is as though the act of singing goes to that kind of soul-deep place in us and opens up a channel there for the Holy Spirit to come in, to redirect our affections, to root our, our heart firmly in the soil of relationship with God. And the Psalms are, after all, about relationship with God, aren't they? Even when they are crying out in anger or in the absence of his felt presence, the very fact that the conversation is happening is a testimony to the relationship. The Psalms tutor our souls in our walk with God, and they form us in a posture of humility and trust, even when we don't understand what God is doing. The psalmist may question what God is doing or what God is not doing, but they're always steadfast in that rock-bottom trust in God's unfailing love. His character is never maligned. So think about that. You know, so many times we think about questioning God, but the Psalms, they do that, but they never malign his character, even when they question his ways. This is the posture of the Christian life, the freedom to question and yet the humility to trust. And the psalmist always embodies this posture, even in the midst of anguish or unanswered questions. God is sovereign, and God is good. And when life doesn't seem to add up to that equation and challenges us to reject one or the other of those truths, the Psalms are there, always saying, I will trust in your steadfast love. Sort of like not just I will trust in your steadfast love, but I will trust in your steadfast love as an act of the will. We are formed and oriented into this posture and we're sustained and nourished in this lifelong walk of faith through the daily sowing of this precious seed. The Psalms are God's gift of the interface, interface of faith with life in the real world and they cultivate raw authenticity, humility, and trust 
and the certainty of God's covenant love, even in darkness. Now I want to go back just quickly to this matter of singing. First of all, singing slows us down and makes sure that we take the whole journey. It's really easy if you just read a psalm for your eye to just kind of skim over it and you kind of get the general uh, idea. But it's really different when you have to give voice to it. And it's almost as though your will becomes engaged as your voice has to speak it and you have to go through every single verse. Second, there's a big difference between reading something and singing. If you were to take the words of all the beautiful hymns in our hymnal or all of the choruses that we put up on the screen and just read them out loud, you would find them edifying. But something different happens in us when we sing those words, right? Do I have an amen to that? Yes? Okay. Our souls get stirred and our affections are cultivated and you tear up a little bit. That doesn't happen when you just read the words. Something different happens to us. And the Psalms were meant to be sung. Throughout the whole history of the church, as Tim said, they have been sung in different ways. They've been chanted for a large part of the church's history. They have been put into meter, like a hymn, like we just sang with Psalm 1. Um, basically, a metrical psalm just takes the text and puts it into meter and rhyme so that we can fit it into a familiar hymn tune. They've also been crafted into freestyle music. All of these are ways to recapture the original form of sung poetry that the Hebrews knew. And I would like to challenge you all, especially those in our Asbury Songwriters Guild, to write contemporary settings of psalms in musical forms that stir your heart. It doesn't matter what the form of the singing is that will open up a channel into your soul. Just find it. It might be chant, it might be metered psalms, it might be free uh, settings in contemporary music styles, but find it. And explore different channels that maybe you haven't uh, thought would stir your soul. But in one way or another, learn to lay hold of this means of grace, both for the orienting of your perspective into the way of the righteous, into God's ways, and also for the reorienting of your heart toward loving and trusting God, whatever your circumstances. When you take a typical hymn book, like the Asbury hymn book, and you place it side by side with a Psalter, the two are very different kinds of worship books. A hymn typically fit within a very confined frame of space and time, perhaps three to five verses, and take approximately three to four minutes to sing. Part of psalm singing is learning to break that expectation of what a worship journey is like. Some psalms, like Psalm 117, are very explosive and can be sung in a matter of probably 15 seconds. Other psalms, like Psalm 78, are much longer. Some psalms are peaceful, others turbulent. Some psalms, you have only the voice of the psalmist, but often psalms will experience rapid change of voice, God's voice, the psalmist's voice, the voice of the wicked, all appear regularly in the psalms, and often moving back and forth. Very much different than a hymn. When compared to a hymn book, the scope of the psalms is also far more diverse. Hymns tend to be acts of praise and adoration, with, of course, some exceptions. 
The Psalms do have some of those, but uh, the 150 journeys also contain laments, historical surveys, warnings, penitence, struggles against your enemies, deep question of God and his purposes, eschatological hopes, to name just a few. It's a very, very different kind of terrain. I tell people who even venture the possibility of starting to sing the Psalms, be ready. You better buckle your seatbelt because it can get very tumultuous. The 150 journeys, as I said, are like 50, 150 tracks that God has laid in the Bible. And to sing them is like laying train tracks, to use a good Wilmore analogy. As you sing the Psalms and sing the 150 Psalms, you're laying 150 different tracks in your life. The great thing about it is if you wake up one morning and let's just say, for argument's sake, and let's just hope this was your day-to-day, you woke up and you were feeling great. You were feeling fabulous. And you woke up, and that day was, the psalm for the day was a lament. I found it so good to sing a lament, even on a day when you're feeling great. Because number one, somebody you know is in lament. The world is always in lament. And someday you will be in lament. And you will need to have that train track, those tracks laid in your life. And the psalm gives us a number of journeys. I want to give just a few that perhaps we don't think about when we look at a hymn book. The psalms really bring out, as Julie said, in a raw form, one's personal struggles before God. They they reveal the depth of God's character right in the face of human turmoil and struggle. The Psalms are teaching us that we find God not as an escape from time, which is so much of the kind of evangelical narrative, but actually by going into time, walking right into the midst of our struggles with God with us. And I love how the Psalms cycles through these words repeatedly throughout the Psalms. Chesed, emet, mishpat, zedek, shalom. Covenant love, mercy, justice, righteousness, and peace constantly churning through all of this, forming us to see God in his full character in the midst of the full reality of the life that we have. If untutored by the Psalms, you know, only being drinking the, 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 the pablum, the stuff that's often brought forth as worship, we often have faith crises, and some even lose their faith because they had not been properly catechized for the actual life that we are asked to live before God in the world. Then, of course, the history psalms. These are amazing treasures before us that come to us in the Psalter. And I love it because they give us sometimes uh, history from different perspectives. For example, Psalm 105 and 106. 105 tells the history of Israel from God's perspective. It's a glorious celebration of the mighty acts of God in creating the world and calling forth his people from Abraham, the parting the Red Sea through Sinai, on and on it goes, all declaring God's work. To turn the page, you go to Psalm 106, tells the same story from the human perspective. It's a, story, it's a whole psalm remembering our rebellion in the midst of God's work, our stubbornness of hearts, our propensity to resist God's work and make it into an idol. Those two psalms alone do more to understand the history of the Christian church than any two acts of worship you'll likely find. And then, as again Julie mentioned, the questioning psalms. 
there's an invitation in the Psalms to ask difficult questions that we don't normally encounter in our normal acts of worship and hymns and choruses. The Psalms are filled with hard questions, sometimes with unrelenting force. We have a whole list of all the, psalm, the questions of the Psalms. Just take Psalm 74. When was the last time you had the boldness to say this before God? Why have you rejected us? Why does your anger burn against your own sheep? How long will you allow foes to deride your name? Why do you hold your hand back? Why are you silent? Have you forgotten your covenant? We just don't sing songs like that. But the Psalter is the great permission slip where God sums us into that real pain where we find ourselves in the midst of some shocking and unsettling ways that dis- are disruptive to our normal evangelical sentiment, and yet it really teaches what real worship is like. And then finally, there are warning psalms. There's so many other classes of psalms, but the warning psalms, we want to look at, let you look particularly today at Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 is a psalm that most of you know the first seven verses of. Because they're used countlessly in the churches in call to worship, etc. Because Psalm 95 opens up with this beautiful, beautiful act of worship. But then in verse 7, it turns and becomes a very tumultuous call and warning to us. And so at this point, we're now going to sing not just Psalm 95, 1 to 7, but sing the whole journey of Psalm 95 together. The way we're going to do that actually going to let the music help us to take that journey. So we will begin the psalm with this familiar tune, I hope. recognition out there? Okay, good. Um, That's how we will begin because the the beginning part of this psalm is that kind of calling us to worship God and celebrate him. And then when we get to verse 7b and 8 to 11, we're going to shift to this tune. Okay, does that one sound familiar? Yes? Okay. And let the music help you take the full journey of this psalm, which is usually stopped by verse 8. And we usually don't call people to worship with the warning, but the whole psalm can call us to worship and to remind us, if God is speaking to you in this worship service, don't harden your heart. That's a good call to worship. So let's stand as we sing this psalm. Let's see.
That is a somber ending to that psalm, isn't it? We need to hear those warnings, and lest we think that's just an Old Testament warning, it's found four or five times, depending on how you count it, in the book of Hebrews. So um, this is a warning that the author of Hebrews felt was very important for us to keep singing. And when we sing it, we remember it. If you were to look at the categories in the topical index of this or any other hymnal in America, you would typically not find a category like lament, anger, injustice, vengeance. And that is where the scope of the Psalms really stretches our common understanding of worship. The Psalms are often filled with prayers along the lines of these common life experiences. And by making these songs part of the deep reservoir of our prayer life, we are cultivating an important means of grace that we will doubtless need at some point in our lives. Let's begin with lament. Now much has been written about the area of lament recently and I think that the church is finally finding its way back to this really important practice. Well over half of the Psalms have portions of lament and so they teach us that lament is the language of faith. Make sure you get that. Lament is the language of faith, not of doubt. Lament is not despair because we are still talking to God about it. We are still voicing things to him about what is not right in this world or in my life. And that is the language of faith. It's the determination to voice our complaint, our agony, our profound sadness, our grief, our broken cries, before the one who loves us with an everlasting love, the one who holds us in the shadow of his wings, the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. These psalms give us the very words to use, and they also, as Tim said, they give us permission to expand those words with words of our own, with the specifics of our own griefs, and with the words of others who have felt those griefs too. God has invited us, actually more than invited us, God has preceded us with voicing our pain and grief with the words of others who have known pain and grief before us. And that reminds us that we are not alone, however much we may feel abandoned. There are others who have walked this way before us. And most of all, God has given us the very cries of Jesus himself as he walked this lonesome valley of tears and pain, and carried our sorrows all the way to the suffering of the cross. Lament is one of the most authentic prayers or songs that we can sing, and we have plenty of tutelage for that in the book of Psalms. Secondly, repentance and confession. Many of the Psalms contain passages of confession and acknowledgement of sin and falling upon the mercy of God. But we pray prayers of confession often in our worship, but there's a deep pathos when that confession is sung. Again, the power of music to help us to really feel um, the, the weight of that confession and that penitence, not just to speak it. 
There are seven psalms in particular that have been designated over the course of the history of the church as the penitential psalms. And these include both personal and individual contrition as well as a plaintive and somber acknowledgement of the general brokenness and the transience of the world. And sometimes you just sit in that place of mourning the transience of life and the brokenness of the world around you. Now, on to anger, injustice, and vengeance. (laughs) Those categories you will definitely not find in a hymnal. And no doubt the biggest struggle we have as Christians is with these imprecatory psalms or the psalms that contain cursings and the New Testament command of Jesus to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, not call down vengeance upon them. So we have to address that, right? And of course, we read or sing all of scripture in the light of Christ. That's the first thing that we need to always say. But Jesus himself and Paul and many others in the New Testament quote verses from these very Psalms. And the general dissonance that we feel in our souls about injustice in the world or anger at the evil and wickedness that's part of God's image in us. It's right that we feel those things. the, The point is, what do we do with it when we feel it? If we don't feel it, there's something wrong with our aligning ourselves with God's ways because God is angry about those things. So the issue is, how do we respond when we feel these things that we all will eventually feel if we live in this world? So We have found it helpful to, um, as we have wrestled with these over the course of years now, to come up with some lenses that help us to process these psalms and how we're going to sing them. So the first lens is that of transference or release. These cries for justice and vindication are not taking the actions themselves. They are prayers. We need to remember that. They're they're prayers to God. They're not going out and actually taking the vengeance. In fact, it's the very praying it to God that helps us release it into his hands and not go out and take vengeance, right? So the Lord said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the psalmist is just saying, okay, Lord, it's up to you. You said you would do it. I'm calling on you to do it, but I'm not going to do it. Therefore, These words that are given to us help us to release it, help us to get to the other side of that pain and that anger and get to the place of forgiveness that Jesus calls us to. But how do you get there unless you first get it out? And where's the safe place to get it out except for before the presence of God? It's a lot better than getting it out any other way I know. So... That's, these, these psalms give us actually inspired words that God gave us to voice that injustice, that disappointment, that anger, that um, feeling of I want to take vengeance and to release it and place it in God's hands. Secondly, spiritual warfare. Now, when you sing through the whole uh, Psalter, you come up upon enemies a lot. In fact, I think we've counted that all but 26 of the 150 psalms mention enemies. That's 
a lot of mentioning of enemies. <laughs> and when I first started singing psalms with my mom, my mom was one of the sweetest people you will ever meet. And we started singing the psalms. And, of course, by Psalm 3, you're already at enemies. Actually, by Psalm 2. But by Psalm 3, you're, you're up against personal enemies. And, and my poor mom, I just can still see her face. She said, but I don't have any enemies. And I said, of course you don't, Mom. You, <laughs> you are so dear. You can't even fathom having enemies. But the Christian life is a spiritual battle. It just is. Um, one of the early quotes that we found when we were first starting to wrestle with these psalms was, the Christian life is not for non-combatants. It is a spiritual battle, sometimes with physical foes, but as I reminded my mom, with one great enemy that we do all have, and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour, we all have that enemy, and we can pray those psalms with every bit of fervor against the enemy of our souls. We also have enemies of depression and addiction and things like that that hold us in bondage. And when we cry out to God to end those things, you can kind of put them in that spot too of asking God, put an end to these things. We're doing warfare on behalf um, of, of our souls when we ask God to end those things, those bondages in our life. So it's a wonderful way to sing these psalms, to think about them in this lens of spiritual warfare. The third is the cross of Christ. Now sometimes when we emphasize the grace and the mercy of the cross so much, we tend to forget the other side of what Christ bore for us on the cross. Remember, he bore God's judgment for sin. And these cries for justice to come upon the wicked are actually windows into the cup of wrath that Jesus bore for us and help us to, helps us to remember the weight and the intensity of the cup of wrath that he bore for us. And the final lens is that of eschatology. While we now live in the time of God's favor and grace, there is still a final judgment coming. And these psalms ultimately remind us that the time will come when God will set all things right. When we see or experience horrific evil that exists in our world, and it, some of it has touched your lives very deeply, when we see that, we remember that there will be a time when evil will be banished forever and it will never rise again. And the expressions of finality in these psalms of judgment that call out for God to end this with finality and to, to bury it forever, they, those, those expressions of finality point us to that final day. And that is actually the great hope of our faith, that God will set things right. So these psalms have a real beautiful place in the life of faith. We're going to actually sing our next psalm. We're going to kind of return to lament and sing a psalm of lament for our next psalm. There are, there are two really huge questions that plague us as Christians and actually as all of humanity. Why, as Tim said some of the questions, why is this happening? 
why is a huge question. And the other is how long? How long will this go on? And there are a lot of ways you can ask that question of how long. One of the ways you can ask that question is with frustration, like this. And this shows you how different musical expressions can help you sing the psalms differently at different times when you're feeling them different ways. So how about this one? an anguish and a, a frustration of how long. And then there's another way to sing how long. How long, O oh Lord, will you always forget me? How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face? How long, O oh Lord, will my foes be exalted? While I counsel within and have sorrow all day. You see how the psalm can take on a very different feeling depending on how you set it. So find multiple ways to set these psalms. We're going to sing a metrical uh, setting right now. You can just remain seated for this because this is our prayer time. And I want to invite you to pray. If you yourself are in lament right now, Sing this song as your prayer to God. If you have a friend who is in lament right now, sing this song on their behalf. Enter into that space of intercession for someone else who needs to sing this psalm and maybe who won't sing for themselves, but you can step into that place. Or you could just sing this song for the general brokenness of the world. How long? How long will this world be broken? Find some way to sing this song of lament, how long, and Zach is going to lead us. It's to the tune of Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. i 
For our last vignette, the Psalms as a window to Jesus Christ. Christians often view the Psalms through the lens of the New Testament and the fulfillment which is celebrated there. In this respect, the Psalms have entered the life of the church with tremendous canonical force because they're directly applied to Jesus. One's mind quickly goes to Psalm 110, especially the phrase, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which is quoted five times in the New Testament. We think of the great Messianic Psalm 2, which is quoted twice in Acts, uh, I'm sorry, quoted in Acts, twice in Hebrews, three times in Revelation, you are my son, today I have begotten thee, is both Hebrew poetry and New Testament proclamation. And certainly one thinks of Psalm 118, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And that line, for example, the stone will reject to become the cornerstone, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 22, of course, is heard on the lips of Jesus on the cross itself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other psalms, like Psalm 80 and Psalm 132, point to Jesus even though they are never, ever quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 80, for example, provides five of the richest images of Christ, which are now part of our Christology, though the psalm itself is never quoted. Christ as shepherd, Christ as the true vine, Christ as God's son, Christ as the son of man, Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father of God. However, the 150 Psalms do a lot more than simply point to Christ. I think it was about our fourth time through the Psalter. This is like when you get to over 600 Psalms that you've sung. About our fourth time through the Psalter, we began to hear a third voice in the morning. The voice of Jesus who showed up and began to sing the Psalms with us. The Psalms is the only prayer book that Jesus ever knew, and he sang them every day. And what happens is Christ becomes the voice of all the Psalms. He laments with us. He carries our sorrows. He embodies Israel's history. He warns us. He stands with us against those arrayed against us on every hand. He embodies all of our eschatological hopes. He, of course, is our comfort and grace. He stands in the midst of Psalms, not merely to fulfill them, but to stand with us, with us in these Psalms. And when Psalm 88 is that Psalm of great darkness, it's very remarkable to remember that Jesus sang that Psalm in Caiaphas' pit that night. We sing Psalm 82. We know Jesus also is angry at the injustices of unjust judges that trod down the poor. We sing Psalm 70, I can hear the voice of Jesus, O Lord, deliver me, make haste to help me. Well, we're going to close this part of the service by singing Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 captures so many of these themes. On the one hand, it's one of the great messianic psalms. I think it's the second or third most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But Jesus doesn't just fulfill this psalm. He stands in the midst of the psalms with us. Jesus positions himself as a combatant with us in this great cosmic struggle in a world that stands opposed to his kingly rule. So we're going to stand and sing Psalm 2 and sing it to the tune of the church's one foundation.